Good evening, wherever you are. Thank you very much for joining us on the Just Like the Movies podcast. We're a week late, a buck short, but we're back, and we're back to talk about a movie. <laughs> we're back to talk about a movie that I think would be very fun, and I think it should be a breezy conversation. Shouldn't be too crazy because uh, one of the things I like about the movie, and I think Johnny is on the same page with me, is that this is Marvel before all of the fuckery, before it got completely out of hand with the. Uh, power leveling and the multiverse and all that stuff we'll try to keep that talk to a minimum but we're going to be doing 2008's iron man which is a very important movie for mcu fans and cinema fans alike and i, I would also like to kind of throw in there that this was you know I, I don't know if you'll hear this opinion quite often but 2008 like in hindsight probably one of the best years for movies in recent memory just you know you had this you had the dark knight you had Mamma Mia. No, <laughs> you had the you had the Grindhouse double feature. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I have been babbling for too long before asking the main man how he's doing. Johnny, how you feeling? Talk to everybody about Iron Man too. Yeah, Iron Man is my favorite MCU movie. I think um, I am going to slightly correct you and say Grindhouse was two thousand seven. Was it two thousand seven? Fuck. Yeah, I remember it distinctly. I um, thought it was the same year. My bad. I'm I'm getting no. worse with that. Oh no! All good. I feel like if anytime someone is one above or below the year, that it sort of works for me. Um, no, I don't, you know I don't get hung up on release dates, but there are some movies like Dark Knight's one. Like you just you you nail that one because that's just unforgettable. Um, but yeah, Iron Man started it all, and you know I'm a bit, I've always been a big John Favreau fan, dating back to Swingers and him you know obviously doing elf to to great success and then he gets an opportunity to take a big swing and do uh you know the launching pad for the mcu is as you aptly put which turned into this juggernaut of just absolute chaos and uh i i think you and i have similar opinions on the mcu and sort of like maybe jumping the shark a bit or going a little too far in certain areas and doing things like multiverses, which is a fancy way of just saying nostalgia and fan service um, by bringing in all like the Peter Parkers of past and stuff. Uh, well, at the same time, here I am hypocritically being excited for The Flash, which is getting rave reviews and everyone's saying Michael Keaton crushes it and all that stuff. So that's certainly a multiverse fan service thing too, but it's Michael Keaton as Batman, so... I am going to appropriately excuse myself for being hypocritical. Um, but yeah, Robert Downey Jr., uh, this is career revival type stuff. Uh, I believe Zodiac was uh, two years before or three years before this. And, uh, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which had a Kiss, big, Kiss, Bang, Bang. big but, uh, influence on his career. But as I understand it, and maybe we just knock this out of the way at the beginning, uh, Marvel had to be convinced to go with Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, which actually is eerily familiar to all the buzz that was going around when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman back in uh, the late 80s. There was a lot of pushback on that from fans, a lot of questions from the studio, uh, but it wound up being a great choice, and he might arguably, arguably be the most popular to come out of the MCU in terms of someone playing a specific character. I can't think of anyone else that has been adorned so much as playing one of those characters as he has as Tony Stark. So I'm pumped to talk about Iron Man. And I love the fact that in the rewatch of this movie, it's it's a huge movie. There's a lot of massive special effects, big scenes, big moments. But the fact that this sets the table and just how it's sort of a very linear 
and not convoluted movie. Uh, it's easily digestible, but it gives you a lot at the same time. So I, I have a lot of fun with Iron Man, and I still do 15 years later. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, I, I, I think the same thing. Like when I was watching it, it just, uh, and this isn't a knock by any stretch of the imagination, because I still think it's one of the best MCU movies, and it's, it's a really good movie in its own right, taking it out of that context. But it was like watching it was just so familiar. You know, it's like, because if you've watched enough MCU stuff, like I. I haven't seen every MCU movie. I certainly haven't seen every TV show. Uh, but there was a time when th these were like appointment viewing. Like I saw this in the theater. I saw just about every Marvel movie that came out. Um, actually, that's not true because I didn't see Captain America 1 or any of the Thor movies in the theater. But everything else up until about Endgame came out. That, like I, w I was there. But um, did you see this one in the theater? Uh, Iron Man? Probably not. Oh, it's not coming back to you. I definitely remember seeing this in the theater, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was late to the game with uh, Marvel. I, I'm, you know, I was always more of a DC kid. Um, So I I remember seeing Dark Knight like four or five times that year. Uh, but Iron Man, I'm not sure. I, I, I might have. I just don't remember it. But um, so what was your experience like seeing in the theater? Anything particular that stands out to you about it? No, I mean, I think it was, I think a lot of what got this movie positive praise at the time was, you know, I, I read comics. I wasn't like a huge comic guy, but like, I think we kind of, maybe you were more of a heavy comic book reader than I am. I learned more about the Marvel and DC lore from collecting trading cards. I did read some comics, but Iron Man wasn't really one of them. Like I always thought he was a cool character. And I liked some of the story arcs I read about, but I never read any real Iron Man comics. And then that actually kind of influenced the movie because a lot of people did not want to be involved with it because they thought Iron Man was like a second or third tier Marvel character. And Marvel at this point, um, I, I didn't really answer your question, but like but to answer your question about the movie itself, when I saw it in the theater, I was like, it's like they're finally getting it right. Like, I, I, not to get too meta on you, but, like, in Iron Man 2, when he watches the old newsreel, the outtake that his dad leaves for him, which is a pretty cool moment in the movie, and he says, and it's kind of like a plot contrivance, but he's like, I'm limited by the technology of my time. Like, he knew, <laughs> like, he was so, like, the brilliance that runs in that family in this mythos was, he knew what he wanted to do, he just didn't, like, know how to do it. He didn't have the technology to do it. I think comic book movies were like that for a long time. I mean, they were trying to adapt this one since 1990. And we'll get into that a little bit. We won't get too in the weeds because there was like 18 versions of this movie before what ended up, not, not literally 18, but there were several, several versions of this movie that came along, different actor, director combinations. But when I saw the movie, I was like, wow, the, the, the way they blended the effects and they, they had the comic book stuff, but it wasn't too over the top yet. I mean, the first half of this movie could be... You know, almost, and, and it was heavily inspired, John Favreau said, by uh, Clancy novels and, and movies adapted, uh, James Bond and Robocop. Because I think it was Aristotle who said, all roads lead to Robocop. <laughs> that's, that has to be true. There's no way that's made up. Uh, that's funny. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting story because. I think now that you mentioned this stuff about Iron Man, I don't think I was very familiar with Iron Man, the character at all, aside from, you know, hearing about him. And I think maybe that's what kept me from the theater on this one. 
And also, you know, I was never the... I like Robert Downey Jr., but I didn't become a big fan of his or a bigger fan of his until Iron Man. Um, I, you know, knew him, of course, all through the 80s and doing movies with like Molly Ringwald and Brat Pack type stuff. And then he sort of took a dive in the 90s with his uh, substance abuse issues and and resurfaced uh, while still young enough to have a career revival. And here we are today. He's, you know, been very successful and, you know, even beyond, you know, Marvel, he's he continues on. But I think that's probably what kept me out of the theaters and maybe a bunch of other people. Because uh, I see it did make about 580 uh, in 2008 at the box office, uh, which for Marvel is probably, you know, one of the lower dra- uh, draws for their box office returns. But without the success of this movie, what really becomes of the MCU? You, you need that launching pad to really sell people on the story. There's a brief post credit scene in this one that uh, reveals Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. Uh, so that's, it is sort of starting to set, to set the table. Um, but I like watching this movie as its own. You know, th- there are plenty of movies in the MCU that I enjoy, but I like that you don't need to worry about, you know, what else do I have to watch before I watch Iron Man? Nothing, literally nothing. And that's so cool that it can stand on its own that way. And I, can't, I you know, when I think of Tony Stark now, I think of Robert Downey Jr. And he definitely brought a lot of his personality to the character because i'm not saying when i see tony stark i just see robert downey jr but if you see robert downey jr and you know who what his personality is like in interviews and just how he's sort of very charismatic and quick and sharp all of that he carried over right into tony stark now i don't know if that's why they thought of him if that's how tony stark was always supposed to be but it works because i enjoyed the character and i even enjoyed the pre Iron Man stuff. I, I I liked him being sort of this like, yeah, I'm the coolest guy in the room and I know it type of bravado <laughs> uh, that comes with it before he had that, you know, check of, you know, consciousness about, well, what am I doing? You know, uh, what, am I, what am I doing to the world? What impact am I making? You know, where he was just sort of this arms dealer who would mock the idea of peace. He's like, oh, yeah, peace. Totally. As he's filling his pockets and sipping on some uh, some of the finer blends, uh, if you will. So uh where, where, where do we want to like kick this thing off? You know, I know before we started recording, as always, and by the way, thanks to everybody who, who's been listening to the show. It, it, means, it means a great deal to us. We took a, uh, an extra week than we normally do, so we appreciate you standing by. Real life comes into play here, and me and Mike have been uh, taking on, you know, different uh, ventures in our, our day job. So without getting too deep in the weeds on that, but uh, make sure you do subscribe to the pod on your preferred audio platforms, whether that's Spotify, Apple, wherever you see us, just look up just like the movies and you'll find us on your favorite podcast app. It's free to listen and free to subscribe and spread the word. Appreciate it. Um, But yeah, where do we want to get going on this? The only thing I want to point out is that you said before we recorded, which is really the only thing we really talked about is that we didn't want to get too far uh, down the rabbit hole in terms of, you know, some of the things they had to do for, you know, the Iron Man suit and special effects and stuff, but do you want to kick things off from a story perspective, uh, casting? Where, where do you want to go? Yeah, I, I think, like, like I mentioned uh, earlier, the they've been trying to, they had been trying to make this into a film since 1990. And there was a bunch of different things that happened. Like, at one point, Nick Cage was attached. At one point, Tom Cruise was attached. Um, a bunch of different uh, directors, like Nick Cassavetes, really wanted to do something with it. 
Uh, Stuart Gordon, who was a low-budget like horror director. He did Reanimator and a few other things like that. He also wrote Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I think that's probably his biggest professional accolade. But that that was all the crazy stuff they went through to try to get this made. And then what's really important, if we're talking about the modern Marvel, Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I didn't realize this because a lot of people probably who enjoyed Marvel movies in the 90s, like if you liked the Blade adaptation, which I thought was pretty good, or... Maybe if you had a soft spot for the Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie. I don't know. But you got to remember, Marvel was already kind of in financial trouble back in the 90s. And they were licensing their characters to whoever would pay. And with varying results. This was when Marvel officially bet on themselves. They took out something. It's like some financial jargon. I actually wrote it down because I, I couldn't commit this word to memory. It's it's some non-recourse debt facility. Now, what that the means is... That? What's that? the fuck is that? Well, basically what it meant is they borrowed like half a billion dollars from Merrill Lynch to finance seven uh, for over a seven-year period, and they put up their own intellectual property as collateral. So, Ooh. if their movies bombed and they couldn't meet their financial obligations, Merrill Lynch would have sold the intellectual property. I mean, and it's funny because Disney bought Marvel a year later. And I guess if this movie had not have been so successful, maybe it would have affected the valuation. I'm not sure because it was just this movie at Incredible Hulk by then. But they already had other stuff in the pipeline. Like they had, probably had Iron Man 2 in the pipeline, a few other things. But basically it was Marvel gambling on creating their own like producing their own content and that's basically the decision that gave us the marvel cinematic universe whether you love it or hate it or like for what it's become and uh i i just thought that was really interesting because you know i love business talk no but i mean i just didn't realize it's like when you hear these hollywood stories it's like these crazy risks that they have to take to get things where they want to be and so I think though like it's important to contextualize it those two ways. So yeah, um, that, that that's I mean it's it's interesting of the journey of this movie when I I'm trying to, I'm reading up on some of the stuff now and that um and, and I you know I tried to look into I had no idea you know gun in my head you list these names and I don't think anybody's identifying them the screenwriters Mark Fergus and. Hall Otsby, Hawk Otsby, and Art Markham, and Matt Holloway. They're like two pairs. And as I'm reading it here, it's it seems like it was a very loosey-goosey script and that the actors could really uh, riff and, and sort of like develop their own dialogue, which maybe lends itself to why Tony Stark does come across as very heavy Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean... So I, it, 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 it's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Favreau is already a big established director at this point. Not big enough for where Marvel was pushing back on his first choice as Robert Downey Jr. to play the role. Um, I think now Favreau's in a situation where people would uh, fully have confidence in anything he brought to the table. But you have a a solid, steady director there. Uh, You have a big-time composer who actually gained bigger fame with uh, Game of Thrones after this. which I enjoyed the score for this. It was not conventional. It had some rock elements to it, which I enjoyed. And of course, sprinkling in some uh, hard rock hits uh, to kick off the movie and also to close out the movie. Um, But the screenwriters, it's just interesting. And we've encountered that a bunch of times in some of the movies we've gone over where we're like, yeah, it's so 
weird that this movie was such a successful hit and then these people really had no credits before and really didn't go on to do much after. Yeah, ever ever since we did the Gladiator episode, it seems like it's like we it's <laughs> like man, the you don't realize how much chaos there really is in a lot of these productions and then sometimes the result is just so great. And you know, the, you, and what does our friend Johnny always say? The strength is in the script. Well, in this one it was the script was rewritten dozens of times and the the, uh, the big Iron Man villain probably the biggest one he had in the comics was the Mandarin and up until 10 weeks before this movie started shooting that was going to be the villain and then John Favreau decided it was I don't know what to do with this it's a little over the top May, there might be some even back then maybe it wasn't really um, the most racially sensitive uh, you know, kind of the Asian arc of villain archetype type of thing. So then they kind of made it so he was in the background, and then they they changed the primary villain to uh, Ironmonger, which was uh, Obadiah Stane, played by Jeff Bridges. And so, like you said about the loosey goosey thing, I mean, it was like, and the the people involved had different opinions of it. Like Robert Downey Jr., he really wanted this part because I think, and it, you know, I can never really. I'm just, this is pure speculation, but I think he knew what a big opportunity this was, even though he was only going to be working for less money than Terrence Howard, even though he was the star and John Favreau found a way to use those personal demons. He thought it would actually be an asset besides his awesome, you know, obviously he had a great screen test. I mean, the, I think the other people they were talking to in this incarnation was either Clive Owen or Sam Rockwell, which I think. Either one of those might have been interesting, but I don't think it would have been as iconic as what Robert Downey Jr. did to it. I, and and your your observations, I think, were spot on. I, he worked so closely with Favreau during the writing process, and there were stories from the set about how um, Gwyneth Paltrow, in particular, had a hard time like keeping up with him because he just wanted to do the scene a different way every time and just see how it would turn out. And Jeff Bridges initially... Um, had some difficulty with it too. But then he kind of, his quote was, I just started treating it like a $200 million student film. There were no, I don't know, maybe that was his idea of how much it cost, but um, <laughs> it was, <laughs> he. so he, I don't know how, it, that's a funny thing. I don't know how, it's like with Robert Downey Jr. as, as Tony Stark, I don't know how much of that is him versus how much of it is a script, but like a completely different thing. I don't know how much of Jeff Bridges is really the dude. Because it was like it seemed like he hmm. came into a really stressful situation and just kind of rolled with it, but yeah, and well, and Jeff Bridges is a pros pro. Uh, he's he seems like that type of actor who, as long as you direct him and tell him exactly what you're looking for, he's going to give you just a stellar performance, no matter what it is. Like, and he's had a wide range of characters. What I find interesting about the you know improvisational element of this, what you just said about. Gwyneth Paltrow and and um, Robert Downey Jr. made me think of a lot of the criticisms that we often hear about Vince Vaughn with his female counterparts in movies. Uh, specifically, I remember, I believe it was Reese Witherspoon had a real difficult time working with him. Not like he was bad to her, but Vince Vaughn also very improvisational, obviously best friends with Jon Favreau. Uh, he was very improvisational in Four Christmases and Reese Witherspoon had trouble because she's used to sticking to script. Um, so, and it's funny because John Favreau is clearly used to working with uh, Vince Vaughn, back, dating back to even Rudy, where they were had cameos, but 
doing swingers together. They obviously had a lot of improv there because Favreau wrote the character of Trent based on Vince Vaughn. Uh, also, other movies they worked on together, not necessarily that he directed, but he's used to working with someone who's improvisational. So maybe that was very comfortable for him in working with a talent like Robert Downey Jr., who I think most people would agree is a more talented actor than Vince Vaughn. Um, being able to work with somebody as a director who is improvisational, because some directors have a very difficult time if actors don't st- st- stick to script, or if, say, it's a the screenwriter is has more notoriety than the director, the screenwriter sometimes will get angry if actors go off the pages. In this situation, it was big-time established director, uh, a, an actor who's trying to make his way back, and then lower-named screenwriters, so the leverage was more in the hands of the director here, and he was probably on board with this sort of improvisational style. And I think it makes the movie better in the sense that it does feel um, more conversational, where some of these Marvel movies feel a little too um, one-linery mm-hmm. and a little a little too cheesy. Um, whereas this one, that's not the case. And it does feel like these exchanges are real, especially in the social settings. And a lot of the standout scenes to me were one-on-ones, uh, specifically the you know the the i don't know what it's actually specifically called but when he had to change out had to have pepper help him change out his you know mechanical heart and that you know it's a very stressful scene because he's going to cardiac arrest but it's also humorous and how it's happening and that one-on-one between them felt very real um so she must have adapted to it i'm not the biggest gwyneth paltrow fan she seems to be quite the pill in real life (laughs) But uh, she did a good job as well, Pepper. I, I think that's that. part of the reason why you can't say she's a bad actress because in this movie she's incredibly likable. Like she Very. said that her inspiration, and I don't know if it was her inspiration or John Favreau's inspiration, or if they collaborated on it, but she said she wanted to be like a like an actress from the forties. She wanted to be sexy, witty, and innocent all at the same time. Uh, yeah. And, so and, I mean, it's a great it's a great part. I mean, like you know, because it's not overly, you know, she's competent and all that stuff without giving up. Like the stuff where she's like talking about how like the scene you mentioned where they're changing out the arc reactor. She's talking about how gross everything is. Like that's something a girl would do, regardless of how competent or like calm they are, for the most part, right. unless they work in like the medical field or something. But um, and then like his his uh his portrayal in that scene where he's just like, he's keeping calm because if he freaks out, she's going to freak out and the whole thing is going to go to shit. <laughs> like it's, it's, I, that I, scene is, it's like you ever fix something with your dad and it's just that pressure that gets put on you and you can clearly hear what the direction is, but because you're so stressed out, you like, it sounds like a different language. So it could be like <laughs> right there on your left and you like look to your right and you just don't know what you're doing. So he goes, uh, don't pull that thing, that, that, that thing attached to the ring. Oh, and you just did it. You just pulled that out. Okay. Now I'm going into cardiac arrest. <laughs> like, and you shit. mentioned the conversational tone and, you know, the Robert Downey Jr. effect, like his natural charm and charisma and all that stuff. Like that. So that scene in the beginning where they're in Afghanistan and he's riding in the convoy with the soldiers. Like if that was just Robert Downey Jr. on a USO tour versus Tony Stark, the, the fictional character, is there really that much of a difference? Like I can picture Robert Robert Downey Jr. saying the same stuff. Like, yeah, it'd probably just be a glass of water in his hand instead. <laughs> yeah, instead of instead of like iced tea or whatever the hell hell he was drinking to make it look like ridiculously expensive scotch or cognac. 
whatever right. and I, I love drink. I love his uh his like little drink uh suitcase rig set up and clearly there's uh the, the like the condensation that comes out or the steam or whatever you want to call it comes out it's just like very cold looking and it's just so cool it, and I'll, I, i'm throwing one of these in for every sale over 500 million just take yeah seat. yeah yeah and he's just like he seems like and robert downey jr seems this way too he seems never to be without the right response to say or the right remark or quip and i love even though it's so short I love seeing that version of Tony Stark because he just seems so cool. And, the, and you know, the soldiers are, you know, starstruck by him. And he, like, notices that one of them was a female. And he's like, now I can't stop looking at you. Now that I know that, <laughs> he's like, I can't stop looking at you. And then the one guy's like, can I take a picture? Would that be cool? He's like, it'd be very cool. <laughs> I, that's like... what I'm saying. I think, I think like, it's kind of like a lot of his personality coming through there. I, I yeah, and he's like, no gang signs. I'm kidding. Throw it up. He's like, yeah, <laughs> to peace. <laughs> but then... Like, it's so real because the attack happens and then he immediately, you know, the coolness washes away immediately. And then all of a sudden he turns to them for like, he's starstruck by them. Like, now I need you guys, you know? Uh, And you could see the fear in his eyes and stuff and everything just changes on a dime. And then you're sort of like, whoa, I thought we were getting a slow burn here in this movie. And it just punches you right in the face. Yeah, one of the things there are two things I really appreciate about the Tony Stark character in general, especially the way Robert Downey Jr. portrayed him. One is that they say that he's not a superhero because he doesn't have physical gifts like some of the other ones. But you got to remember in in this in this reality, he's like one of the more most foremost intellects on the face of the planet, and he was born with that. Like you can't you can't teach that. Like it's like Marvel's Batman. To a yeah, to a certain extent, and then. Uh, you know, you, like you have that. Like I always thought about that. Like how you know people say, well, he's not like the whole Captain America tension that comes up later in the movie or later in the film series. Like, uh, and then it's like, but but Tony Stark's brain is like something that in this because in this reality that like no one could like he was just born with it. It's God given talent. So like they made it, he portrays him. So like you know how easy it would be to make Tony Stark like just another like autistic savant like rain man type with like no social skills and all that stuff because the the real basis for the tony stark character was howard hughes who before he like flipped his wig like he was you know a charismatic dated dated actresses like a-list actresses like flew around the world like was doing all this all this interesting stuff. He, he was the most interesting man in the world before it was a cynical marketing gimmick to sell mediocre mexican beer um <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Thank well you. Done. And Thank I heard Howard Hughes, as soon as his girlfriends hit 25, he would dump them. I don't know if that's true. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's very meta. <laughs> yeah, a little too meta. Um, wasn't uh, Beckinsale in that movie? Uh, yeah, she played uh, Ava Gardner, I think. God damn. Hmm. God oh, damn. speaking of which, did it break your heart when you heard her t- who turned down the Pepper Potts role? Was it Kate Beckinsale? No, it was Rachel McAdams. Oh, really? Yeah, she was the first choice, and she ended up not doing it for some reason. And then she ended up coming back to the Marvel franchise when she was in Doctor Strange. But she I was like... she, she was Favreau's first choice, I guess. Oh, man. That, yeah, that would have been cool. I mean, I, I do like her. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow did a great job. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. I'll, I'll admit that she did a great job as Pepper Potts. I, I was charmed by her, and I felt like she did a good job, and... I liked 
Yeah, you're like, there's of... no way that this person in real life would sell candles that smell like their box. Like, they, they, like, they would <laughs> never do that. There's no way in hell that would happen. And then it's like, oh, it did happen. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, and she she's like a better looking Alfred. So it really is sort of like... Uh, that he is sort of like the Batman, Bruce Wayne of uh, this this universe, Marvel. Um, but, you know, we do get the flashback of before Afghanistan, and then we really get to see the playboy Tony Stark. But we also get to see a Tony Stark who uh, is not intimidated at all by the press. And uh, I sort of like that scene where he's being um, ambushed by the attractive journalist and he has every answer for her and he just fires it back to her to the point where she um, runs out of questions and he completely disarms her and then ends up obviously betting her. <laughs> um, so, and of course played by the extremely hot Leslie Bibb, uh, at which fans might also know as Ricky Bobby's wife and then estranged wife in Talladega Nights. Uh, among other roles that she's played. I believe she was also in that show, The League, if I remember correctly. Uh, she's been in a bunch of stuff. But um, Leslie Bibb, uh, this movie's not that old, so she's still hot to this day as she approaches 50. But um, pretty cool scene, too, in that, again, uh, parallels to you know the facade of Bruce Wayne, but this is really who Tony Stark is. She wakes up, the blinds automatically open, Jarvis is talking to her, or whatever that is. And Tony's already gone. She thinks he's gone. He's downstairs working on his hot rod. I mean, this guy's the, like the ultimate man fantasy to be Tony <laughs> Stark. And then you have Pepper Potts walk in with her clothes saying, like, I also help him take out the trash. I thought that was such a great line. Yeah, because how many uh, times do you think she's dealt with that? Which oh, it, that was definitely not the first. So which makes you know it all the funnier that they ended up tons. getting together. Yeah. Because it's yeah. like... <laughs> it's like <laughs> you have this you have this trusted personal assistant that you end up making the CEO of your company because as it, it, one of the things that I again about the Tony Stark character is like this unmatched intellect but he clearly has weaknesses like he's not really that great at running a business that's why Jeff Bridges probably has all that resentment towards him because he has to do all this stuff like like can you imagine if the guy who was the CEO of Coke like like had a press conference and was just sitting there like eating Jack in the Box or what the Whataburger or whatever the fuck, and he just is like, <laughs> yeah, we're not gonna make beverages anymore. And he goes on this tangent about how beverages like make kids fat and they give people cancer <laughs> and all this stuff. And then somebody steps up and they're like, okay, it's been a long day for uh, Bruce here or whatever. And but like that's why it makes so much sense that he kind of steps back in the later movies and she runs things for him. So it's not yeah. like she's just a secretary. She's clearly a lot more than that, which is another but, reason why. But don't why they, I... don't they do the, the the that whole pressured thing where like the the female supporting character in a movie like this has to eventually reach the heights that the lead had? Don't they make her an Iron Man at some point or some shit? Yeah, they did that in movies? three, and then the Avengers movie. They, they yeah, in the Avengers movie, one of the Avengers movies. Yeah, and I was like, God damn it. Like, well, because in we the just... comics, there was a female Iron Man, was Iron Woman, but she was a different character altogether. It was a different love interest that they were actually going to use in like earlier drafts of this movie, but they ended up 
going with Pepper and especially, Potts instead. Uh, yeah, especially Gwyneth Paltrow, who like forgot she was in one of the Spider-Man movies. Imagine, <laughs> ma- imagine being an actor and forgetting you're in a movie that made a billion dollars. I, I don't know. Like one of the reasons she said she did this movie was because she it was all shot in California. Because John Favreau's rationale was that too many superhero movies were were set on the East Coast or in New York, so he wanted to set it in California. And then she's like, "Oh, that's cool. My I, I I'm, my kids are only fifteen minutes away, so I have to be away from them." It's like Fa- it's like I get that that's work. a consideration, but yeah, don't be so public with it. Like, oh, it's like it's like yeah, this is just so convenient, you know. <laughs> Nothing about Favreau the merits seems- of the project. Like the movie could be good, like. I don't just no. It's like I'm close to my kids, so that's that's the real draw for me. That's it. Yeah, and well, hey, you know what? The, to each their own. Um, but Favreau seems to really like working as much in Southern California as he can. I know he's. I believe he's from Chicago. I believe that's the whole connection there with you know him and Vince Vaughn, and I don't know if it's Second City or whatever they were involved in, but. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, it looks like his house, uh, they say it's in Malibu. It looks like it's right in Malibu, and clearly a lot of the, the scenery appears to be that way. Um, but in terms of uh, uh, another controversy that this movie led to was uh, Terrence Howard being dismissed thereafter. And he was, you know, Robert Downey Jr., as recently as two years ago, it said Terrence Howard was actually a part of, an integral part of him locking down the role. And I know you had already... Uh, brought up the point that you know Downey Jr. didn't get much pay for this one and you know Terrence Howard I guess had issues with his pay as well to return for uh sequels and I guess there was a dispute between him and the studio and they didn't feel that he had as much leverage as he thought he might have had uh I know there's always the you know you want to suspend disbelief and you want to have continuity and my biggest example of that that I like to talk about is how they weren't able to get Jodie Foster to come back for Hannibal which I think would have been one of the greater sequels of all time if she came back, but they replaced her with Julianne Moore, and it just it took me out completely. Um, especially just that that really deep connection that was developed between Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling, especially between Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. Um, I don't think you need that here with Rhodes, so they bring in uh, our boy Don Cheadle. Who yeah, uh, I think I heard they actually talked to him first about the part. And then he either didn't take it or he didn't get it for whatever reason. So they were, they already like, like he was already on their radar for this part anyway. Well, he he probably read the list of the writers and and saw Robert Downey Jr.'s name and he said, "This production's in Bonnie, <laughs> Bonnie, Bonnie Rubble, Trouble." I I I didn't think there'd be another Ocean's Eleven reference on this on this podcast for the duration. So that and it'll be the fucking last. That was surprising. Very yeah. surprising. Until we do Ocean's Eight, of course. But you know, yeah, you, you'll be doing that one alone, dude. <laughs> or you'll you'll have to tag in the misses for that one. Well, I'll be the, the the same amount of people who went to see it in theaters. How That's funny cool. would it be if you like if you had at your wife do a podcast with you about Ocean's Eight just because she's a woman and she fucking hated it more than you? Like, how funny would that be? <laughs> she probably did hate it. I don't hey. even know that she saw it. My Kathleen, Kathleen's not a big movie person like you've seen her lack of knowledge with actors and stuff like that it is it is sometimes like admirable how little she knows and it's not from a pretentious point of view it's just like you know those people like i don't own a television it's not like that she watches 
she just watches shitty stuff she, and she'll admit it she likes watching trashy reality tv she doesn't like like she's not going to sit there and watch the godfather or jaws or like any classic films on the waterfront or whatever she's going to sit there and watch freaking vanderpump rules i was just and, about to say vanderpump rules that's weird yeah everybody's everybody watches that stuff people in my new job talk about it they, there's watch parties my friends, I went just went to a Blink-182 concert the other day, and it's, uh, a couple of my friends were talking to my wife about, let's do a watch party for Vanderpump Rules. I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, anyway. So, I have never that, seen one. I've seen some of the most obscure, random movies, or I've seen movies like in access of 100 times. I haven't seen one fucking episode of Vanderpump Rules. I have no idea what the premise even is. I probably have just because it was on, but not like, let me dial into this um but back to this yeah terrence howard i thought he was good in this um i could be making this up but i've heard that people in other productions have had issues with him i don't know if he's just like one a, a tough personality but i thought he was good as Rhodes here and i i liked him as the supporting role and i believed his um care for tony stark yeah, he's, he was like the friend who was just kind of fed up with the shenanigans like it was like yeah. i've just seen it like i've seen this since college like the way the i don't know if this is like this in the comics i don't really know for sure but in the in the movie they went to college together so he's been dealing with this shit for 20 years 25 years is he the one that to like keep him grounded and like humbled and like he, he like in other words like you need that person like pepper potts does that to him she gives him the business too but from the male friend perspective like sort of knock you down a peg type of thing that maybe Tony needs once in a while. Yeah, especially like when in this in this in this uh, context where you've got a guy who's a billionaire and probably everybody wants something from him, except you know this one guy that's like a true friend of his. Yeah, it is kind of funny though. I mean, I, I'm probably I'm certainly not the first person to notice this, but how Terrence Howard does the whole thing where he looks at the War Machine suit and goes, "Next time, baby," and then he's just never in the movie again. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 Good point. There, there um, were some rumors that uh, John Favreau wasn't happy with his performance, but I don't know if ooh. that's just stuff they put out. If that was like spin they put out after the fact, or I don't like I don't know. Well, that would make sense because Favreau, I believe, directed the second one, and then Shane Black took over for three. Um. And Shane Black co-wrote three, so that's that's interesting. Shane Black always resurfaces on this podcast one way or another. Well, yeah, he, he was also uh, the writer-director of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, with which a lot of people kind of credit with putting uh, Robert Downey Jr. kind of back on at least critics' radar. Um, yeah, 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 no doubt about it. Um, now, villains, you know we love saying we love our villains evil and dumb. We cannot say that the villain in this movie is dumb but he definitely fell to the dark side so to speak and got bogged down in the idea of you know the the concern of the company going under and his everything that he worked for under the starks for years boils over to the surface and he sees it potentially falling apart right in front of his eyes because of uh this new realization and uh you know coming to jesus moment that um tony stark had so what, what did you think overall of uh jeff bridges performance uh as the main adversary yeah i uh i thought it was funny like one of the things he said like he just you know the, i think the obadiah state of the comic comics didn't look anything like that it was just jeff bridges said he always wanted to shave his head 
and grow a beard. So he just did that for this part, which I thought was kind of funny. Because, like, you think of Jeff Bridges, you just think of that Hall of Fame lettuce. Like, just... Big lettuce. Just luscious, flowing. Yeah. Now it's, like, almost Snow White, which mine will be in, like, three years. But <laughs> Dude, <laughs> anyway, seriously? <laughs> you can't me. trust the guys with the, the Old Testament names, either. I'm sure there's, like, a there's a Hezekiah out there who's, like, a stand-up guy. But by and large, guys with names that end in Daya, they're probably up to no good. But, uh, <laughs> no, I thought he... <laughs> Like, like I was saying, I thought that he did a great job with the, uh, especially with kind of changing with, you know, a, a production that to use a euphemism was highly fluid. You know, fluid is a situation. Fluid's a word people use for it's like, oh, it was a, it was a complete fuck fest. It's like, it was like everything was going wrong. Like we got rid of our main villain two months before we started shooting. Like, uh, <laughs> we were writing, writing dialogue the day we were shooting scenes and. He seemed to really kind of relax and kind of, uh, I don't think it detracted from Gwyneth Paltrow's performance at all, but it seemed like she had a harder time with it, with the comments she made as opposed to to Jeff Bridges. And I certainly didn't catch this, but I thought it was a really interesting comparison. So they have the scene where he's randomly playing piano when he comes back from New York for the board of directors meeting where things like, again, went really badly. And he's playing a piece by Salieri, who if anybody saw Mozart was like the famous rival to Mozart and the whole uh, kind of gimmick, the kind of perspective that that movie took was that Mozart was the genius and Salieri was the guy who just worked really, really hard, but would never be as good as Mozart. Mm. So, so I thought that was, and then you know, he makes the ninth symphony reference, which is oh, very good, which also I guess is a coded reference for um, a lot of conductor, famous conductors that, Composed symphonies like die after their ninth one. Like Is that right? Yeah, I, I guess. I don't know. I guess it's more of a general. I don't really know enough about classical music to really be talking about this. It's just stuff I picked up when I was just reading basic prep material for this. But I thought yeah. that like that was kind of an interesting thing. Like you mentioned that he's he's more the pragmatic, even though the Stark character, especially in the beginning, seems kind of cynical and jaded and kind of steers into the whole thing. It's like, yeah, I make weapons, but I use the military funding to do this. Like. Stain doesn't have any of those illusions. In fact, he's the guy who's, you know, br- like basically committing treason by selling weapons to uh, to hostile nations that w- just to keep the profit margins healthy. Because- yeah, and, and 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 none of that is grounded in reality at all. No. No. No, none of that shit happens. I mean, the whole thing that whole thing at the beginning is a direct reference to Iran-Contra. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I liked him as the villain, and I did read that a, a bunch of his scenes were cut um, to, I guess, put more focus on Tony, but uh, I, I, I don't feel like... Sometimes in movies like this where there's a slow developing of a villain or um, sort of like in The Dark Knight where um, you can see maybe a parallel between Stain and... Um, uh, Harvey Dent in terms of, you know, initially it's, you know, he's a good guy, so to speak, for more or less. And you see that sort of evolution in what takes over and what causes him to ultimately, ultimately make that turn, at least to the audience. And I, th- I feel like he was in it enough and Bridges is good enough uh, that there was enough of him in this to buy and, and, and believe him as the villain for this movie. Um, Cause if you look, 
and you really think about it, yeah, he does get the Ironmonger suit, so he has that sort of over-the-top comic book villain stuff in that battle scene at the end. But throughout the movie, he's just a human being, and his brain is his weapon, and his tactics, and how he's going behind the scenes and doing what he has to do to make sure his... Uh, all he did for his whole career was not for nothing. And, you know getting tired of having to have worked under the Starks for all these years, like I said, and all that's just sort of bubbled up and eventually blew the moment uh, Tony did, wanted to sort of change everything. Um, so I like the fact that the villain in this is sort of subdued and it's just like, it makes it feel real. And because if you compare, this is in the same universe where an, a big, giant, grimace-looking, motherfucking purple guy from outer space becomes the main villain against all of them a few movies later. And here you just have a guy who's all about making money at whatever cost. And it's very earthy, and it's very real, and it's very uh, just way more grounded uh, than everything else connected to this universe so uh, i think it's cool from that perspective too that you're able to have a good enough villain without all the bells and whistles so to speak aside from of course like i said the iron monger suit at the end yeah he's a very grounded villain in terms of you know if you're because he's likable yeah if you're dealing with somebody that you've known your entire life and they're a they're a crucial part of your organization and it's like oh okay this guy might betray me someday but i just i can't do anything about it that that's kind of what's well, kind of what's so interesting about the that part in particular. Like I, I don't think I'm articulating that as well as I would like, but it's kind of like one of those things where it's like you kind of know, like even from the almost the right off the rip, it's like you just kind of you kind of think that there's something off about this guy, like he's being way too nice and the way like the way he's all grabby, like touching his shoulder and stuff like that. It's just like. It's like he's really trying very hard to make him think that he's trustworthy and that, you know, I, hey, I'm your, I'm your lifelong confidant and friend and all this there, stuff. And he, it, like, he does uh, fill the role of the father figure for Tony because uh, he obviously lost his father early on. And he was sort of, you know, took him under his wing and then he gets to become CEO. And they, they, they go through all that in the exposition. And I think that's sort of painting. It, it's using that little montage showing Tony's rise uh, to also show why Stain probably feels bitter. And they use that quick, like two minute, three minute montage to really set the table for him to become the villain and, and make that turn. But throughout the movie, he is very likable. And I don't know if that's just because it's Jeff Bridges, but like you say, he's. He has that jovial presence through most of the movie. He's joking constantly. He's laughing, like you said, putting his arm around him. And he's very social with other people. He's not like this despondent villain that we're used to seeing in these types of movies who's isolated. He's a very personable, social person. He's out there in the mix. Uh, he's not down in in the uh, underbelly or anything like that. He's one of the faces of the company. He's right out there in the open. Uh, so it's a, it is a unique villain in that sense. It reminded me a little bit and I don't know if this is because of the bald thing, but it's sort of a little Lex Luthery because he's just he's out there and he's like, this is who I am, you know, I'm 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 a big part of this company, uh, but then he just snaps and and it just it just completely boils over. Uh, so I I find it to be 
an overall interesting villain. And I, I think part of that, I'll admit, is because I'm just a big Jeff Bridges fan. Yeah, I think the distinction I would make is that he was clearly in bed with the Ten Rings before everything started. Like, it yeah, didn't that's just, fair. It didn't happen in the middle of the movie. Like, it was going on the entire time. I, I think I mean the personal um, realizing that he couldn't burn the candle from both ends and he had to in every way possible betray Tony where for a while he was sort of living both lives and trying to, to maintain both. And it got to the point where he couldn't do that anymore. So I, I think what I mean by his turn is sort of his betrayal of Tony as a friend and as a father figure and, and all that stuff. Okay. And they're, it's, they're, okay. But it's yeah. funny because you think about the Tony Stark character arc in the movie, like his progression like how he became the he, like his father left the company to him because he died in a car accident which you find out later wasn't just a car accident because it's a marvel movie but i mean <sighs> think about it like this like tony he's like this boy genius and he goes to school when he's he goes he goes to mit when he's 15 and then he graduates when he's 21 and i think his father died right around that time so it was like yeah he becomes ceo and that yeah when he's 21 said, yeah, yeah it was kind of like it, on one hand it, it's like you could see yeah, that 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 like uh, you know a life law like a lifer in the company like Jeff Bridges' character would get bent out of shape about something. But on the other hand, it was like completely out of his control. Like mm-hmm. it was just and it was out of Stark's control too. But I mean, that's I don't. I mean, this isn't some half-ass like business politics podcast. You know, we're we're here to talk about <laughs> Iron Man and we're we're supposed to enjoy it. When are you guys going to talk it, about baby. blowing shit up and building missiles and stuff like that? Great question. Well, yeah. So so let's get to that. So. <laughs> It's funny because as I was watching it and he's building the first Iron Man suit and the other prisoner with him, it's so weird at like how I recognize certain actors. I recognize that dude as Pinter from that Seinfeld episode where Elaine like previously had dated this guy who's now going to marry the Brawless Wonder, the O. Henry Harris. Ah. And I was like, I think that's Pinter from Seinfeld. And sure enough, it was. So I'm sure he's been in a lot of other stuff, but... It's a good uh, eye, man. I, I don't think I ever want to pick that up. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's it's not never going to hold water in, in one of our bomb games. Uh, me and Mike, I don't know, I'm sure people who listen to the podcast have heard us talk about this game we play, which is like horse, but for movie trivia. And Mike, I believe his career record is 543 and two <laughs> with 543 knockouts. I don't, I don't uh, think that's accurate. Well, uh, what are numbers anyway? Um, but... <laughs> When he's building, <laughs> when he's building the first Iron Man suit, I don't know why I was thinking about this. I was like, it's sort of like made me think of that Dumb and Dumber joke. Like, what if he shot you in the face? I was like, what if he? Sh- what if they shot him in the eye holes? Because they're shooting him with all these different automatic machine guns and stuff, and they're all deflecting. But what if he got shot in the eye hole? He's dead. Yeah, I guess that's you know? kind of the, you know, the, the suspension of disbelief you have to apply. To, to any movie like this, I suppose. But yeah, you're yeah. right. I mean, I suppose somebody could it could get a lucky shot that goes through the eye hole. And I know we're talking about a Marvel movie, but I just thought that was funny. Um, so what what do you think of that part of the movie where they he is imprisoned and he you know this guy saves his life and he hooks him up to like this car battery and all this shit like. I don't know why it had been a longer time since I'd seen Iron Man than I remember. And I've seen, you know, all these other movies I've seen Endgame. I, I, I think Endgame's a little overrated to be honest with you. I almost fell asleep in the theater, but 
Um, you know, all of them, all the Avengers movies, everything he's in for the most part. And I like forgot at, I forgot sort of how like he needed to live using this mechanical lithium heart, whatever the fuck this thing is, because later on he replaces it with something permanent where he doesn't have to change it out anymore. Mainly probably because they got tired of like making that a part of the fucking plot. So like, let's just give him something that's permanent, so we don't have to fucking talk about it again. Yeah, in uh, the, that that beginning scene was actually very accurate to the comics. It just in the comics, it happened during Vietnam. They just modernized it to happen during Afghanistan. Yeah, like, he they was had developed the doc- in the '60s, right? Yeah, they had the yeah. Doctor Yinsen character, and they had he developed this thing because it was the same thing. It was trying to keep shrapnel away from his heart. And um, yeah, you're right. In the movies, they generally in the in this movie, it's a big deal. And then by three, it's like a minor inconvenience. And then... So, yeah, so I almost forgot about it completely that it, it was such a dire thing for him. No, wait. At at the end of one of the Avengers movies, he just gets all the shrapnel taken out of his heart. So he doesn't even need the thing in his chest anymore. It's just in the suit now. Oh, that's what but it like, was. But you're right. Maybe. Over like It was a bit... They did, that, they did kind of minimize that to make it... I, like less of a thing even though in the comics it was always a thing like tony stark always had heart problems like it was yeah. it was always he was he had heart problems and he was an alcoholic like those two things kept coming up for him yeah yeah um, so so yeah i like it it was just sort of like i was like oh shit that's right like this guy saves his life he, he hooks him up to the thing and he needs to find a new way uh moving forward and all that so i was like oh yeah wow i completely forgot about that sort of uh so so that got me going a bit um, and then like thinking like, all right, this movie came out in 2008. Like we were definitely still in the mix there in terms of like real life and, you know, how far away from, are we from, you know, nine 11 and the invasion of Afghanistan was 2002. So it's really not that far after that. So I, I, I find that this movie, like it like definitely feels early, you know, in the, the first decade of this century in like the 2000s and what was going on then. Um, even the cars and the the suits, uh, uh, which I'm, you're more than welcome to get into. But also, if you notice, like Robert Downey Jr. is not a tall man, and I believe he's listed at that classic five nine Hollywood height that we always talk about on this podcast. I wouldn't be shocked if he's shorter than that. But if you look, they need him to be as tall, at least as tall as Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, probably just for the the the, the masculine element of this. Uh, a lot of his shoes, he's got some fat wedges on the bottom of his <laughs> shoes. He, this dude is either wearing Italian leather boots like Austin Powers, or he's got these like just giant, like Frankenstein fucking heels on his shoes to make him like six feet tall. Yeah, baby, I, I did not notice that. I, yeah. I I was kind of expecting Gwyneth Paltrow at one point to say, "Just because I'm a single mom doesn't mean I can't be tough and sexy." <laughs> oh, you fuck. <laughs> You have to bring Goldmember into my goddamn Iron Man podcast. Though the I beginning mean, you kind of had to. Fun. You were expecting it, part yeah. partly. What was her name? Dixie Normus. Dixie Normus. Yeah, and well, it was Tom Cruise who played Austin Powers. Actually, you know what? That's your fault. You brought up Austin Powers, not me. Like you opened that door. You you know you're at least thirty percent to blame for that. But what if my heart was thinking about International Man of Mystery? It's the franchise. You 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 open the door, man. True, true. Yeah. And if Tom Cruise was playing Austin Powers, so we could have almost had a repeat of that if Tom Cruise was indeed cast as Iron Man. That's yeah. The thing about Tom Cruise, like he's 
he's obviously a great actor and he's really cemented his bona fides with the new Top Gun and then the new Mission Impossible, the two new Mission Impossible movies that are supposedly going to wrap that franchise up. I just don't know if his kind of act would work for Tony Stark. I don't think it's not like he couldn't pull it off, but you know, you've got Robert Downey Jr. who like you said his personality is so integral to the part. It's like when I think about Robert Downey Jr., I think he's like the one He's like one of the few people that you like you could use the word snarky as an adjective and I won't think it's annoying because it's true like that's kind of like his 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 shtick. You know, it's not like every f- horrible online dating profile in the world where <laughs> girls describe themselves as snarky. It's like, "Oh, you just sound like somebody I don't want to deal with." Are you trying to say he should have been named Tony Snark, baby? All right, folks, I'm going to hand the rest of the show off to Mike. I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> so, oh, I am man. so sorry. Oh, that hurts. So <laughs> I am so fucking sorry. Here, 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 here. Take two Advil. I'm sorry. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like if, if no joke, I think if Tom Cruise was cast in this movie, he would have made them build a real fucking Iron Man suit so he could fly around. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's, he'd be like, I can't do a good Tom Cruise impression, but it'd be like, he'd be like, but but why can't we make, why can't the rocket boots really work? Yeah, it, and it's like because uh, we couldn't film that because of air traffic regulations. So then I got a new air traffic regulations guy. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have the sound effects be real as we film? <laughs> Fucking Tom Cruise guy can run like hell though. I'll give him that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Tony Stark would have ran a lot more in this movie if Tom Cruise was cast. Yeah, yeah, the, the rocket boots would have been almost completely unnecessary. Yeah, he but, would have jumped over like a canyon or something. <laughs> you know, this was also. Um, I know we didn't want. I didn't want to. Me in particular did not want to uh, linger on the effects, but we have to mention this was. You know, we mentioned Stan Winston a bunch of times. His involvement oh, yeah. with some of the most. You know, some of the biggest movies of the last 50 years. This was his final film uh, before he passed away. Oh, really? Yeah. Shit, man. Yeah, so, fucking legend. You know, w- went out on a pretty good note, I thought. You know, making, you know, bringing all those effects to, li- to life. Uh, you know, a flying guy in a rocket suit. One of the things I wanted to bring up, and I've always had a hard time with this. As much as I enjoyed the Iron Man movies and Iron Man and the Avengers, it's, you know, it's an iron suit. It, right, but how does that protect you if you fall hundreds of feet at escape velocity and you hit the ground? Is that yeah. where the repulsor technology comes in yeah, that they always so. talk about? Is that what protects your brain from getting fricasseed inside your skull when you hit the ground, going like point two <laughs> Mach? Like, I I don't know. Like that that's the one thing. Like I and I know it's it's a little ticky tack, but that's the one thing that's always bothered me about the Iron Man movies because it is just a guy in there. Yeah. Also, that 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 brings up a question I had. So when when Ironmonger and Iron Man get into the atmosphere, did he get? Did he breach space? It looked like he had stars behind him. And I know that there's that, like, clearly there's layers to the atmosphere or whatever. Uh, but, with, like, was Iron Man in fucking space in his suit? I don't remember. I don't think so. Yeah. I I don't think so. But okay, he went high enough to... And that was, that was another thing I wanted to bring up that, I you know, I don't want to... Because 
one of the downfalls of a lot of movie franchises, but we'll just keep it to the Marvel one for right now, is, you know, you watch this movie, and even though, even though Tony Stark is, like, one of the top five geniuses in the world in this, in yeah. this version of Earth, he still makes a ton of mistakes in this movie. Like, with the suit, with, like, with, you know, just kind of the way he treats people. Even though, like, he's a, he's a guy who's internalized all this stuff about engineering and physics, and it comes naturally to him, but sometimes he says the wrong thing. Or, yeah. like, he has to, you know, go through the motions to, like, make the suit work, and he makes a lot, like, he, he you know, bounces himself off the wall, and the suit freezes up, and it's a miracle he doesn't die. But then, like, you compare that to, like, some of these later heroes that they're trying to do the same thing and it's like they they're inventing stuff and they don't even need the thing that they're trying to detect to invent it because they're that brilliant it just doesn't even make any sense like you, yeah. you mentioned that this movie keeps everything grounded and it you know that's that's kind of the advantage it has for being the progenitor of it all really mm-hmm. um but it does you know the first half of the movie could be like almost any political thriller almost you know, up until the point where we get the big payoff, where it's the iron suit with flamethrowers. <laughs> yeah. And then right. he goes back later in the movie and is, and there's even little, a, a little bit of egocentricism in the way he goes about justice. Like, I, oh, these guys have my weapons. I want to destroy my weapons. That's the mission. There's only the next mission, but he's getting revenge against those guys too in the bargain. Yeah. Which yeah, is. And, and the mu- the music accomp- accompanies it amazingly. I think it's pretty badass. Um, and again, that guy had went on to do the, the incredible score for Game of Thrones. Um, uh, Raymond Jawadi, I believe his name is. Um, the one thing about Tony Stark, I think, uh, and you bring up a good point about how he makes a lot of mistakes, is he he sort of feels like one of those people who has like permanent... I forget what they call it, but he's like permanent child psychology in a weird way where he never really got to, it's like when, when kids are like Macaulay Culkin or, you know, for, as an example, or somebody who was like really famous when they were young or they were an actor all through their childhood and they didn't really get to experience what it was like growing up and become older. And they almost like, uh, stay like in like a childlike psychology for most of their life. Cause like, and they bring it up when he's like, he tells Pepper, like she's the only, um, or she says, I'm the only thing you've got. Or he says, you're all I've got. I forget what it was. But uh, she's like, you would be lost without me. What's your social security number? And he has no idea what his social security number is. He's this big genius who knows all these numbers and all these things. He can make all these equations and develop all this new machinery to change the future of the world generations ahead of its time. And he doesn't know his own social security number. Uh, which made me think, like, do you know your social security number? I do, yeah. Why? Yeah, I, see, I know mine. And we're, we're idiots. <laughs> So if we 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 know that, but here you have Tony Stark, who's sort of like this giant child, and he's been rich his whole life. He hasn't really had to. He's always had somebody like, here's your suit, and you know, here's your cars and all that stuff. There there is this sort of like Tony Stark doesn't like really know who he is as a person, and he know has all this knowledge about all this stuff he does for his dad's business, but I don't think there's really like. <coughs> I don't think he has a fully understanding of like who he is. And there's this like, just there's this vulnerability to him as a, as a person. And there's this, uh, very vulnerable sense of like, he can be easily harmed if left alone in terms of like, uh, 
I don't know, just just being a human being. And it's just so strange. And they, they pepper that in every once in a while. And it's like this personality that he puts out there to live up to the name. Uh, again, a little bit like Bruce Wayne, but Bruce Wayne definitely knows who he really is. So that's where the difference is. Bruce Wayne's facade is on purpose, whereas Tony's is all he ever knew. I don't think, like Tony Stark, I think the tragedy of Tony Stark is that uh, he has everything except the understanding of who he is as a person. And maybe the end of the movie is why the end of the movie is the way it is, where instead of doing the, oh, I got to cover this thing up, he just goes, I am Iron Man. And maybe like his destiny and the reason why he didn't really you know know who he is as a person. Because Favreau makes movies deliberately. I know this is a comic book movie, but he is a very character-based filmmaker. And I think that's probably important part of the storytelling and why they pepper in things like the social security thing. So you could say like, wow, Tony's like very immature and not like a grown-up in this weird way. It's like he fucks this girl. She leaves. Where is he? Downstairs putting together a hot rod. He's like playing with Legos. It's just like there's this, there's this, I don't know. There's this, just like this childlike element to him that I think is like permanent until he finds this destiny of being Iron Man. The way you're talking about the character just really illustrates what a great job they did bringing him to screen because they took, because Stan Lee even said that when he created Iron Man, he knew that it was going to be kind of an unlikable character because he's creating basically an establishment weapons dealer, like militaristic like type of character in the 60s. And he knew that like that would be kind of an unlikable character. And then you take the Tony Stark side of it where he's, you know, a, you know, a billionaire, you know, playboy and like very unrelatable to most people that would just like hate him because of what he has. And then they, they take, Robert Downey Jr. in particular takes this role and kind of takes you on this emotional journey, which it's almost like you mentioned, you said you, you mentioned it, but you didn't use the exact words, but arrested development. Um, and you, this movie is kind of like a growing up movie for him where he mm-hmm. kind of sees the world. He saw the world one way and now he kind of sees it, how it really is. And it changes him. And then like, I think his art without getting too in the weeds, talking about the other movies, you know, Iron Man, the, the Iron Man sequels, in particular, the Avengers movies, and and Captain America: Civil War, which, for all intents and purposes, should have been the third Avengers movie. But well, that's neither here nor there. Um, but <laughs> his his arc over time, where he becomes, he goes from being this kind of like freewheeling, like intellect, like an Iron Man two, where he's giving the he's giving the speech before Congress, and he and they want him to give over his technology, and he's like he's like you can't have it. Because he's all about, it's more of like a libertarian sentiment. Like I, like I created this. This is this is like this is my intellectual property, my physical property. You couldn't dream of making this. And then later in the movies, he t- it it's all about its safety at all costs. So he becomes yeah. a lot more authoritarian than anything. Right. And yeah, to see and 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 the way they do it throughout the movies makes a ton of sense. And you really wouldn't have it without the foundation of this one. That's a good point. Yeah, and and you also can't have a character like this who, you know, good-looking guy, smart, funny, rich, gets any girl he wants, can do anything he wants, and make him a likable character without these flaws that we've been talking about. And he has plenty of them. And you even said, like, he makes a lot of mistakes. 
uh and we said like he has this arrested development he he hasn't really like grown up um so it's it's that type of stuff that audiences can relate to and probably what made this movie successful was that you know favreau knew like you know we're making this movie we got to make sure this guy can be relatable to our audience and that they could see uh something likable with with him whereas if he didn't have any of these flaws it's like it's like when they try to do superman it's like how do we make superman relatable it's like well we got to get hone in on the kansas element and his earth parents and all this stuff and like how they raised him to be humble and how he's good and earnest and he still has his flaws and his fear of being alone in this world and stuff like that you got to tap into that stuff in order to make the character relatable or otherwise people aren't are going to be very distant from that character and not like it and not want to like this movie or see where the character goes in future movies so i'm glad that they tapped into that stuff uh, with Tony because it, it's funny you make that point about Superman because I read an article from Collider that talked about this movie and it it, it the, the author kind of made an interesting point but it, he kind of went out on a limb to do it where he talked about how DC's biggest characters Superman and Batman are not relatable to the everyday person at all because Superman's an alien that's chiseled like a Greek god and has powers that people couldn't possibly fathom and then Batman is very wealthy but he's also very aloof and again he's also like the the world's greatest detective and an incomparable athlete so he's like a composite of four ultra men in one and as opposed to you know it's tony stark's like a version of that but then they found a way to make it seem like he's not He's not as physically opposed. Now, granted, Robert Downey Jr. did commit and got himself in pretty good shape for this, doing martial arts and lifting weights and stuff. And but like, like you said, he's not not the same like physically imposing no character that that like a, a Batman or a Superman would be. And the the the, the way this author was trying to uh, he was drawing a conclusion about how Marvel characters are normal people, generally speaking, who go through some kind of thing. That makes them more relatable, but then, then again, like that's what Batman was. He just had more resources. So I don't yeah. really know if his thesis holds up, but I thought, like, when you mentioned Superman, it reminded me of that. Yeah, I find um, that. Well, I like Christopher Reeve's Superman. I like uh, Henry Cavill's Superman. A Man of Steel, you know, I love. I I will talk about that to the end of the earth. Um, that might be the but, only reason I see the new Flash movie is to see Michael Shannon come back as Zod. Yeah, well, I want to see Keaton, and everyone's saying the movie's supposed to be great. Like, there hasn't been one person. Like, some people are saying like this is one of the greatest comic book movies ever made. So I'm very excited to see the Flash. But when's that one come out? I, uh, is it July, June, or July? But I I disagree. I think Superman is relatable uh, for someone who has the powers he does more so than a lot of marvel characters but i'm a dc person first so there you go but iron man you know uh one of my favorites in terms of uh, marvel and, um and it also it goes to another thing that i kind of picked up that robert Downey jr said was that when you're doing this kind of face turn i guess morally um it's easy for characters to become really stiff and unlikable but they're trying to do the right thing all the time as a, like he described it as going the Dudley do right route, so it was really important to him to go from being 
kind of a likable asshole, which Favreau thought he could do. It was one of the reasons he cast him in the part, I guess. But to move from that into a more thoughtful, considerate, you know, like hero by the end of the movie. Yeah, that's that's a good point. There, um, he, yeah, I mean, for a comic book movie, the character does go through a pretty heavy arc uh, just in this movie alone, let alone where it takes him to the end of Endgame. And there, I will say this, there definitely is a benefit to watching the other movies that Tony Stark's in and seeing his uh, story like through the end, especially they, you know, not, not not to give out spoilers here, but I imagine people listening to this probably also watched Avengers and Endgame and all that shit. But, you know, at the end of the Endgame, they talk about the cheeseburgers and his daughter saying, you know, Tony's daughter saying she wants a cheeseburger and Happy saying your dad liked cheeseburgers. And it goes all the way back to Iron Man when he gets back from Afghanistan. All he wants is a cheeseburger and he's sitting there eating his Burger King shitty cheeseburgers <laughs> and stuff like that. But I mean, it's a it's but in this movie itself, he has his own arc, which sends off the trajectory of where he goes from this point. And I give credit to Robert Downey Jr. there again. Because I think um, even just he, him as an actor, like if people don't get that he is a bit tongue in cheek at times, they'll probably think he's just this arrogant asshole. But I think there's a self-deprecation in a lot of things he says. And if, if you understand his humor and that's what he puts into the DNA of uh, the character of Tony Stark. So I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people that probably could have played Tony Stark, but I, I'm really glad that we got uh, Robert Downey Jr. as him because now it is way more difficult for me to see someone else um, playing that role especially the others who we had talked about were on the table um, so uh, dating back to you know the 90s when they're trying to develop it so um, any, do you have a favorite scene or, or moment in this movie? Um, I don't know about a favorite I mean because really what was interesting to me about this movie was, it was at the time, like Favreau said that there was a lot of pressure to succeed. And now because of that thing I explained with the, with the, uh, basically where they, they, they like wagered their intellectual property that their movies were going to make money. It kind of mm -hmm. makes sense now. Maybe he knew that at the time. Maybe he didn't know that. I'm not sure. But he said that there was a lot of pressure on him for this movie to succeed. And he said that it was also very, it was not very uh, anticipated at the time. Because, again, Marvel, Iron Man was kind of like a second tier Marvel character to a lot of people, especially casual fans. But they said they had to really knock their socks off at like the film festivals and stuff and in the trailers. And what they did was they would show the effect shots of him flying and all the stuff they went through for that, like, but it, it, like they, they decided to make it more grounded by having him take off slower and then land fast. I mean, that's a funny that's a funny scene. It's not one of my favorites or anything, but it's funny when the first time he tries to land and he's like, he's just a couple feet off the ground. He's like, all right, and bring it down. And he just falls through like three levels of his house and crushes a car. <laughs> so it's like a little slapstick. And again, it goes to that whole thing about how he's still figuring it out because that's what... Because it, it, he describes himself in later movies as a tinkerer. That's what he is. He's an engineer. And engineers aren't going to build something correctly the first time. Or they're not going to anticipate every possible interaction that thing's going to have with the environment. Like, he didn't think he was going to fall through three three levels of concrete. But... <laughs> um, 
I mean, I thought the action scenes were really good, like, especially, um, were very enjoyable. Like, one of the, like, when he goes back to Afghanistan the second time with the Mark II suit or the Mark III suit or whatever it was, and just fucks everybody up, like, and he has that little, and they didn't waste any screen time on this either. It was pretty believable. He had that little, he had that little gadget that just shot everybody all at once. Because they all took hostages, and it was like, oh, okay, yeah, I could see that Tony Stark would invent something like that. But I mean, yeah, the- it reminded me of the the programmed Batarang in Batman Returns, <laughs> how it went from each goon to the next. Thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Batman Returns. <laughs> oh boy, we'll have to we'll have to do an Iron Man two just to compare it to Batman Returns. Because what <laughs> one boy. of the things that was funny in the Iron Man. Um, the Iron Man movies is like every villain had like a personal beef with him. Yeah. Which I guess is something that's really not like, you think about what the, the uh, Batman trilogy, the dark Knight trilogy, it was kind of the same thing except for the Joker. Cause the Joker just came out of nowhere and like was gone just, which made it all the more appealing, but it's like, that's like some kind of a more modern conceit, but I don't know any, you know, that scene where he's flying with the F 22s is really impressive. Um, you know, it was just like think, watching him try to. The special effects fl- held up really well. Yeah, which is surprising because I mean, yeah. like, it was like I was saying earlier. I think people always wanted to make comic book movies that were this good and this high quality. It's just they didn't know how to do it in a cost-effective or convincing way. And then this was one of the movies that showed people like part of the reason that this movie's so important, not just for the establishing the MCU, um, you know, because of the decision they made to bet on themselves to use a very shop worn cliche, but also, as you mentioned that, that, you know, that ad lib out of Robert Downey Jr. I am Iron Man. That kind of took the franchise in a new direction where they didn't really have to fuck around with secret identities. It kind of just takes that level of convo, like that, that level of like unnecessary complexity out of the, out of the series of movies. Like you imagine if they did the Thor movies, but half the movie he's walking around as a doctor. (laughs) <laughs> and then you have to explain that yeah or i i don't know i don't know if uh, captain america had a secret identity I, I, I'm natalie not portman's sure. like doctor you have unusually huge biceps and beautifully <laughs> flowing long blonde hair why, why is that he's like healthy he tries living to put on some like yeah he tries to put on some like different accent too yeah or he go, um, he does the go-to um the go-to male actor excuse it's like well it's like wow you put on 35 pounds of muscle in 20 weeks how did you do that oh you know just a uh, chicken breast and broccoli not not a fuckload of gear not that for sure <laughs> i'm not on the gas <laughs> <laughs> not not the juice that's for sure <laughs> Um, yeah, th- I mean, that is one of my favorite parts of the movie just for that reason alone is just like squashing the tired stuffiness of having to hide the identity, which I know some characters like are completely just through history based on like Superman, Clark Kent, you know, but or, you know, Batman and Bruce Wayne. But I like that th- he just like immediately squashed that out. Uh, again, I do like the confrontation with the reporter before he takes her home, where he just like shuts down her line of questioning one after another. I thought that was really yeah, cool. Yeah, his his witty but still arrogant on brand uh, comment sticks with me. Like I think it was in the trailers too, where he's like, where she she called today's Da Vinci goes absolutely ridiculous. I don't paint. Like, <laughs> yeah, right, right. And she's like, didn't what did she call him? Like, not Merchant the of Death. Merchant of Death. Like yeah. That. Oh, it was Merchant yeah. of Death. Okay. And he's like, oh, I like that. I like the sound of that. 
Um, so in other words, he's like, he's like saying like, I'm not affected by your attack right now. It's not working. And I, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, depending on whether you agree with Tony or not, I like that he was not intimidated by the, the line of questioning and he just threw it right back. At yeah. Him. And that so it goes to his like, what he, cause that's in the movie, in the chronology, that's before he goes to <laughs> Afghanistan and he gives that speech where he talks about like, you know, hit hard, hit like I, I'm subs. I'm uh, paraphrased, but hit hard, hit fast. It's like that's how America does it, and that it's worked pretty good. So that's how my father did it. That's how America does it. It's worked pretty good for yeah. us so far. Yeah, I, yeah. And there's a lot of other cool like genre elements used in this, like a cat and mouse stuff, which I like the scene where Pepper goes to Stain's office and uh, gets the files on the flash drive and. He does the classic villain thing where he walks in and sees her there and he offers her a drink and he pours himself a drink. It's like every villain has a has some sort of setup, some rig with some <laughs> some fi- fine blends of booze in their office. And he offers her a drink, a very classic yeah, cliche. God forbid thing. you serve anything in the bottle that's packaged in. It has to be in a fucking like crystal sniff like crystal decanter. <laughs> right, right. Or you're and a anytime- loser. Anytime people meet for a drink in a movie, someone leaves before finishing that drink for some reason. And that's always the case. And it's like, it's like in movies when they don't say how much a dollar amounts are. They write it on a piece of paper and show it to somebody. Um, but anyway, he, he sort of... It, it's like they, they both know that the other one knows, but they're not revealing it yet. And then he finally sees Download Complete. And he goes to you know chase her. So that made me think of like cool movies like No Way Out with Kevin Costner and like I like cat and mouse stuff. So I really like that scene a lot. And then there's also the you know sort of like James Bond romance type feeling thing when they're at that ball and he he asks Pepper to dance and you start seeing the culmination of their romance uh, developing even further. Um, so I like that they place little elements of other types of style movie um, stylization in the storytelling. Yeah. That, that's a good scene too. I thought, cause I wanted to mention, I, I did, I kind of cut myself off when I was talking about it, but like it, it's like, he's still smooth. You can still see that, but he's kind of like, he's kind of treating it differently. Like the stakes are different. Like it's not, he, yeah, you know, it's not some chippy reporter who's just like, you know, getting, getting aggressive with him is like kind of a form of foreplay. It's like, no, this is a, this is an important person to him he respects pepper yeah and he wants yeah, to get it he, right but he seemed to like sleeping with women he didn't respect because he didn't have to now, who doesn't about... am i right <laughs> i mean if you yeah met me in there my my early run that's for sure but, but we i've matured um <clears throat> but listen i think uh that scene was good with with pepper he clearly respects pepper and i think I don't think like going to that movie they were trying to hide that they're going to like end up together. I think they were like making it clear they're going to set that table for us. Um so it wasn't one of those will they won't they type things. I think it was one of those like oh, she's like the only person um aside from his his friend who really like he lets in and she almost has more knowledge about him and his life than than he does well, actually she does and she she says as much so i i in that scene i think you're right like there is this timidity to him to make sure he's not you know insulting her or he's not doing anything the wrong way like he's 
handling it way more delicately but still has that sort of bravado where she says no to the dance and he's like all right let's go (laughs) and he just like leads her to the dance floor so uh i i like that a lot and you know we're right you know we 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 shit on gwyneth paltrow a bit and she she's she just kind of unlikable in that in the most like smell your fart out of a wine glass actor can possibly be to take a page from south park but she's she is a good actor to the point where like you brought up before that we actually liked this character so i like pepper Potts. i think she was good in this role and did a good job uh and i, th- I like their chemistry too i think that's also important i think that's something that gets taken for granted sometimes is the you know the romantic angle having chemistry between the two actors um i think is is very important so since, since you are the resident rachel mcadams expert <laughs> how would you have liked to have seen that chemistry that they have in Sherlock Holmes in this, though. Oh, mm. yeah, Mm-mm. that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I would have picked Rachel McAdams over Gwyneth Paltrow for sure in this role. Um, but it's not one of those where I'm like, oh, I wish anyone else played this role. Like how I felt about Anna Paquin playing Rogue. Yeah, this is this that. is a very specific application for you, though, because of your, you know, your stated. Uh, of, affection for Rachel McAdams. <laughs> and I don't think I'm alone in that. I think Rachel McAdams has won a lot of people over over the years. But Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not really one of them. I mean, it's not like one of those things where it's a mystery to me why, but it's just it's not me. Like, I, but me, it's uh, Elizabeth Olsen. I was watching that um, Love and Death show that they did on HBO, and I was like, I was so fucking annoyed that Jesse Plemons, who was just, I don't know, just let himself turn into a fat pig over the years for some reason, like, he gets to pretend <laughs> to fuck Elizabeth Olsen. And that's just, I can't fucking abide it. It's just terrible. Why do you think I, why do you think I never watched King of Queens? <laughs> Seriously. I'm surprised Kevin you watched James? the nanny, though. I mean, what? Old, old British guy. Fran yeah, Dusher. but Mr. She- yeah, but she- yeah, Sheffield was a good-looking guy at least and successful. Ah, uh, like, uh-huh. like, I mean, Fran Drescher's you know number one on everyone's list, I would imagine. But <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason that show's still on syndication, pal. I'll tell you that right now. Mm. Freaking, like, pay- like taking the page out of Dennis Leary's book when he says, like, <laughs> you know why, you know why Caroline in the City is still on TV? I'll tell you why. <laughs> middle-aged men go back to basic cable when it comes to cranking off oh jeez. um no but uh yeah i don't know what else you want to get into i know we're almost up on an hour and a half here um are there any other important scenes we need to talk about i mean nothing like like i said when i was watching this and this isn't to ding the movie at all because i really enjoyed it when it came out and i enjoy it just as much now especially seeing how bad the later Marvel movies have become like, and how far I like I granted there's, there is a, a increase in complexity. They have to deal with you introduce bigger threats, bigger powers that you like, it's like, how do you top it? That's probably the core at the problem for Marvel coming up. I think is that they're going to have to address all this multiverse stuff. And they've got different, different heroes that like, this was just in a grounded kind of reality and kind of set this emotional journey for this guy. So there wasn't really anything that, you know, the stuff I mentioned, like, I, I I think the action scenes still hold up. I think the CGI was pretty seamless with the... Me- Definitely. Me- uh, blending it with the practical effects to create the suit. Um, I don't I don't really have a, 
you know a ton more like i think i think we did a i think we did a pretty comprehensive job you know talking about the the background for this movie how it came out and then like you know going with the the cultural relevance of it i, I you know without without this without the success of this uh, relatively modest as it was now it, i think the bu- budget was like 140 160 somewhere in there and it made like 580 something like you said but then it had DVDs and rentals back when that was a factor. So yeah. I know it did better than The Incredible Hulk, which I think I think history is going to... Which came out a couple months after this. And I think history is, is starting to turn around on that movie. I think it's just when people think... I think it's hard to do a Hulk movie. I, I think it's hard to make a whole franchise around that guy for some reason. It's, it's more difficult. I, I... Yeah, I remember growing up on the TV show with my dad and watching the Bill Bixby Lou Ferrigno show and liking it because it was just <clears throat> it just was different than anything I'd seen on TV at the time. And I know you know it's hasn't aged well in terms of like what they're able to do now, of course. But back then, having this giant dude with green paint was all you had. Mm. Um, and they were able to focus a lot more on it was actually called David Banner in the show, but they focused on him a lot more than the Hulk. And I. I think they've tried a lot. You know, they've used good actors, Edward Norton, Eric Bana, and it just, for some reason, and like with The Punisher, like, I don't mind the Thomas Jane movie. I, I like the violence and the Ray Stevenson one, but I still don't think we've gotten a great Punisher movie either. either. And maybe, you know, the TV show was good with John Bernthal. I like that one. But maybe some of these characters just aren't cut for the lead in a movie. To be the like the main focal point because I like Mark Ruffalo's like supporting Hulk. There, there's funniness to it. There's also arcs involved and uh, charm to that and evolution of the character and also some awesome action scenes. But I don't know if I would see a Mark Ruffalo Hulk movie. I think I'd be bored. Yeah, like th- this movie, like, watching it was just so. Cu- it was like just it was a breeze. Like, yes! I know we got a little deep with some of the stuff. Not It wasn't like the Fight Club podcast or anything like that. But like, <laughs> we, got a, we got a little deeper than I thought I would. But it wasn't, like, anything crazy. But the movie itself, no. I mean, is like, yeah. if you... Especially if you like the Marvel formula, like I used to. Um, and many, many, many other people have and still do. Um, like, watching this movie is, like, it's just, it's just super comfortable. And it's, like... It's like you, you you slip right into it. It's just it's like really easy to watch and kind of revisit yeah. those things and you, and you kind of see it's like oh this is kind of how they they all that this is why like this has kind of established the formula for this and for this and um it's um it's yeah it's easy to digest it's refreshing in that sense especially if you come back to it after watching the Marvel movies that kept getting more and more intertwined and and complicated. And almost difficult to follow the, you know, the connected tissue between them all because I don't know that I've seen all all of the Marvel movies. But yeah, and it was it was so much easier when like when it was one or two a year, and then I was like, oh, I yeah. just need to I need to see the one in March, and then I'll be ready for the one in November. And then it turned right. into no, you got to watch the three movies and the two TV shows. Like the I TV saw the new, shows. like I saw yeah. the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Uh, last week. Oh, I still want to see that. How was it? It was it was pretty good. Um, it was definitely a step in the right direction. I don't think it was as. Um, I think I think it's probably the worst out of the three, but that's not saying it's bad. 
Like they're my favorite Marvel movies, the Guardians movies. Yeah, I actually and, wouldn't. I wouldn't mind talking about the first one or something on the pod one day. Yeah, they they uh, they get back. I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody because the movie's been out for a couple weeks. And, and John, you haven't seen it now. You and I know you want to, but I, I think it was like a step in the right direction. It's like I think they just did too many, like because everybody knows this is going to be the last one. So they kind of did some stuff that was kind of a waste of time, and it was like it was a little long and. Sometimes the jokes didn't really work. And mm. I was really surprised that James Gunn came back. I, I thought they were doing like a stunt director for it. He was going to be like an executive producer, which meant he was going to have like a shitload of input. But I was really surprised they brought him back. Stunt for cock. It, but it was, um, it's definitely worth your time. I think it's better than anything they put out since Endgame. Like, oh, all right. So, and, I don't know. I I know that sounded like a more scathing criticism at first, but I, I should have led with the fact that it's probably the best thing Marvel's done in five years. So that alone, it's probably worth. Oh, except for No Way Home. No Way Home is good, but um... the the only thing I have left on Iron Man is is it like was Stain so far removed as a good person in Tony's eyes that. There was none of that real, like we go right from his death to the end of the movie fast, and there's no like wind down time where it's like Tony, like we don't see scenes of Tony reflecting on that relationship he had with Stain, which was you know clearly an important part of his life as he helped sort of steer him and how to do what he had to do. There was no like mourning or anything. Sometimes like even when someone turns bad in these movies, like you see that sort of like you feel bad of like who they were and who you thought they were that sort of shit. It's just sort of like he dies, and then Tony's like, press conference time, I'm Iron Man. Well, I think I think it's two things. One is, I don't think... I, again, this is just speculation. Um, I think that tone was too heavy for what the movie was trying to do. It was just like, he went... He, it's like, it was real simple uh, moral mathematics. Like, he went bad, no grief. Plus, everybody was in cover-up mode. Remember, they were trying to, they were trying to get out in front of it. So they were trying to come up with a story about this bullshit. Okay. Yeah. So I think like something like that might have happened after the fact. But I think he he was in the frame of mind where he was still trying to play ball and cover everything up. And then at the, the, at the news conference, in the heat of the moment, he just said, fuck it. And like, I'm Iron Man. And apparently that was an ad lib on his part. And the way, if you think about it, anybody who follows uh, The Mandalorian... Um, <laughs> You know, the big twist at the end of season two, for anybody who hasn't seen it, like John Favreau had experience with hiding big twists like that because at the time, it, it's easy to forget what a big deal it was in, in comic book movies for a hero to not just say that, oh, I'm this hero. And it was it was a pretty interesting decision by Marvel, but they also had to, they had a room full of 400 extras. And they had to hide that from them. So what John Favreau said was it was a dream sequence. Like it was like like imagine it's like that happens and then it smash cuts this Tony Stark like shaking sh- like shaking his head. It's like hey Tony, you got to go on. And he's oh. and he's like oh. And they did the same thing with the Nick Fury post credit scene, which you know goes to establish the you know the words were chosen very carefully for that you know, that you're part of a bigger world and and all that stuff. And the way they did that was they brought Samuel L. Jackson in and they had him shoot like three pages of dialogue and then they just snipped out the stuff to make that speech that 
I don't know how much of it was. I, it sounds like some of it was intentional, but like a little bit of its hindsight. But it was like the des the design all along was that they wanted to go forward and have their own self-contained universe of content that they created. Now, they got bought by Disney, but I don't think that really had a, an effect on the day-to-day -day business. So when you think about the cultural relevance of this movie, it's it really kind of took superhero franchises in a new direction and i i would argue that i i don't know how the flash is going to be you sound pretty hopeful some early early reads sound pretty hopeful but you gotta admit that dc was getting their dicks kicked in by marvel like with the exception yeah. of the nolan batman movies but everybody kind of knew that like christopher Nolan's not going to do those movies forever i i agree with you there i still think dc is better than marvel and i know that's not a popular opinion right now um, and I'm, I, I am very eager to see what James Gunn does with the new Superman. Um, he wants to return back to more of like the hopeful, infallible, like good Superman. Um, and after what he did with guardians and, uh, I'm very curious. He's, he's launching the new DC universe. So I'm very excited. To I, see I what just, he does th I think not doing it with Henry Cavill is a really interesting decision. I don't agree. I with know, it. and I wanted him back so bad, but I guess The Rock completely fucked everything by hijacking the, you know, decisions made around Black Adam, and uh, like apparently he like really fucked everything when it came back to Henry Cavill returning, and you know Cavill's going to be forty soon, so are you going to start a brand new DC universe with a forty-year-old Superman? Like, how long is he going to be able to play that role and still look like Superman? Like, I. So I understand them starting over, but I loved Henry Cavill Superman. So you're you're preaching to the choir there. Um, it was just weird but, how they announced it, and then three months later, announced yeah. that he wasn't going to be. It was just it was yeah. bizarre. Sucked. It sucked because I was so excited, and then the the, the freaking wind got. That's cool. You're still me. supporting him in spite of that, though. I mean, I'll I'll see how it comes out. You know. I'll... Yeah, yeah. I I mean. I think James Gunn has his finger on the pulse and knows how to make a pretty good comic book. I just, I just don't think we're in agreement about. I think Mar. I think if you looked at the scoreboard, it would be like Marvel seventeen, DC four. And yeah, like, you're probably you're probably right, but I think for those four, I, I think sometimes some of those DC movies, like especially like Man of Steel, there's just a lot more substance to it than some of the Marvel movies. Um, which you don't need that a lot. I, I understand like that's a darker movie than you know, what Stan Lee intended with Marvel. So I think Marvel probably did a good job of keeping the camp and the lightness and accessibility to everybody. Like a 10 year old's not going to probably sit down and watch Man of Steel. Uh, but you maybe you want 10 year olds watching Superman. So maybe that's what James, James Gunn's going for. So we'll see. I, I still like it all. I'm not sitting here saying like, oh, Marvel sucks, DC rules. Like I just had a great time talking about uh, an awesome Marvel movie that kicked off all that shit. So, um, I don't have much else. Uh, do you? What? Anything else you want to get into? As far Iron as the Man? movie goes, no. I think I, I don't want to. Again, I don't want to like go in circles. Plus, the movie. I think the running time's like 125 minutes, so we don't want to go. We definitely want to kind of try to abide the uh, the unwritten rule <laughs> of the show. But um, no, I uh, I had a good time talking with you. I'm glad you enjoyed the movie too. And um, before we uh, select our next one, we meaning you in this case. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to uh, wish everybody a happy uh, Memorial Day weekend and, you know, whatever you do, be safe and, uh, you know, take the time to remember, but also take the time to drink and uh, or whatever you like to do. Just relax. Yeah. And I think our last episode came out before Mother's Day. So for the 2% of our audience that are women that might be mothers, 
uh happy mother's day my wife i don't think even listens to the podcast but as as she shouldn't because she's not really a big movie person but uh happy mother's day to all the mothers retroactively from us here at just like the movies we're we're big fans of mothers especially our own um Mike's like, don't you speak for me. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to hear me bad-mouthing my mother, especially in a public forum. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. That'd be the one, like, your brother listens to, and the next time you guys fight, he's going to clip it out and be like, Mom, listen to what Michael said about you. Uh, change the will. I, I would no. just be embarrassed to get my ass kicked by a woman who's, like, a foot shorter than me. I think that, I don't think I would ever <laughs> fucking live that down. No. Um, all right, next up... Um, yeah, I'm what are you thinking? To, what are you feeling? So I'm going to harp on the the cheap move of trying to tap into something of relevance. And uh, we've done multiple movies <clears throat> from a franchise before. Batman Returns off of Batman. Going to revisit that theme again. And uh, not your favorite franchise, but my favorite movie of this franchise. We are going to do Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Okay. All right, I'm looking forward to rewatching. I watched this movie a lot when I was a kid, and I think I talked about this during the Raiders of the Lost Ark pod. Uh, pod. We, uh, I watched, I watched Last Crusade like t- like thirty or forty times when I was a kid, and I never saw Raiders of the Lost Ark all the way through. It was so weird. Temple wow, of Doom, yeah. f- fucking forget it. Temple of Doom, I just watched like three years ago or something. I like Temple of Doom more now than when I was a kid. I don't know if I was because I was scared of it or whatever. I was worried about my heart getting ripped out of my chest or falling into a freaking pit of lava. And also the heights with the bridge and the and the crocs. But uh, Les Crusade was always my favorite Indiana Jones movie. And I just always had a good time watching it. It's like a comfort movie for me. And the, the relationship between... Well, we'll get into it. But Sean Connery and uh, Harrison Ford, I thought was so good. But... Um, yeah, so we'll get into that in two weeks' time, uh, which will probably be about two weeks before the final Indiana Jones movie comes out. So hopefully people want to tap into that with us. Uh, I know there's people probably screaming, why aren't you doing Crystal Skull? I apologize. <laughs> uh, but no, we're, we're, going, we're going OG to the one that closed out that trilogy and doing um, Last Crusade. Mike, uh, thank you for picking Iron Man. I enjoyed my rewatch of that. And I enjoyed talking about it, and I, you know, I, there's stuff I'm taking away from it that uh, probably wouldn't have if we didn't do this otherwise. So appreciate the pick. Likewise, sir. Thank you. Anything else for our lovely audience before I take us home? No, take us home, buddy. All right. Thanks again, everybody. As you heard before, uh, make sure you're a sub to the show. Also, if you don't mind, whether it's Apple or Spotify, or whatever, whatever, if there's a rating system on the Pod app you use, sh- throw us five stars. That'll help us show up in some searches. And someone recently said they were just looking up a movie. I think it might have been RoboCop or something, and they found us. Uh, So people are searching for movies and finding us, but you will help us by rating us. So we appreciate that very, very much. And any feedback, you can hit us up on JustLikeTheMoviesPod at at gmail.com. Of course, uh, Instagram, JustLikeTheMoviesPod, and Twitter at JustTheMovies. And uh, we appreciate it very much. So uh, until next time, from me and Mike here on JLTM, be kind. Rewind, relax, and we'll see you in our time.
Bear.